It is a privilege and an honor to be here this morning. Uh, Pastor Scott's usually gone. I'm glad he's here today because I want you to know I honor your pastor. I love this man of God. Appreciate him. Would you appreciate him with me and let him know how much you love him this morning? Oh, come on. That was a golf clap. You can do better than that. Come on. And I heard rumors somebody who has the hardest job in the church has a birthday tomorrow. That's Sister Charlotte. Would you give her a hand clap of appreciation? Let her know you love her. My wife will tell you real quickly, the hardest job is not being the pastor. It's being the pastor's wife. So uh, we'll kind of go by. I'm not going to keep you forever, so we'll kind of fly through some of this. But. So I'm, I'm not a cook. I eat well, you can tell by, you know, Scott's lost a lot of weight, he needs to, he's inspired me, he's looking good, so, but I eat well, love food, and we'll talk about that, but I don't cook, I'm not, I can cook hot dogs and, and, you know, eggs and the basic stuff, but I'm not much of a cook, I can grill every now and then, but what I do like to do is make sauces, so I'll take some ketchup and some mustard and sriracha, and I'll just combine a whole bunch of stuff to make me a homemade hot sauce, and I remember in high school, went to Clinton High School, we had a Spanish teacher t- named Mr. Eiler, and this dude was crazy, I mean crazy in a bad way, I mean one of the, at, at, when, when class started, he would lock the door, and if you were late, you were locked out, and one morning this girl came in, and she was late, and the door was locked, she started banging on the door, and he literally about assaulted her, I mean it was pretty scary, but he was, he was crazy, and, and my best friend and I then, Kurt Caulfield, were in the same class, and we had a project to make a Spanish recipe, so we went, dude, and I can't tell you, we put cheese and sour cream and sriracha and Texas peat and refried beans. I mean, you name it, it was the kitchen sink hot sauce. We put everything we could imagine. We laughed and laughed, and it was actually pretty good, but that's about the gist of my recipe cooking. But, you know, for things, there's a recipe to follow if we want to make something well, if we want to make it tasty, if we want to make it flavorful. What I want to talk to you this morning is a recipe for success. Now, it's a very basic message. You know, God and I have even argued about this message because, God, is that really what you want me to speak? But I know that he dropped it in my heart several weeks ago for you, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Probably a very familiar scripture for many of you. I'm reading from the NLT, the New Living Translation, so it might be a little different. But Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says, all the believers, everybody say all. This is a participatory message. Everybody say all. All All the believers, if you'll you'll help me preach, I'll preach shorter. Okay? Going to get an amen. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And a deep sense of awe came over all of them, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great generosity, all while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. So this is a very fundamental message, very fundamental passage, seems like. But if we, if we never get the fundamentals right, we'll never get on to the greater things. You know, 
I really don't want to talk about the game yesterday, but I will say, you know, it, it, it's, you, you, when the guy is open, you throw him the ball. He catches the ball and he runs, you know. You don't overthrow him by 10 yards. When somebody's running down the field, you tackle that person. When there's a wide receiver going down the field, you guard that person. And if they can't do the fundamentals right, they'll never be great again. Amen? Amen? I, I am embarrassed, to be honest, but I'm never ashamed. One of the reasons I'm here is I've got a 72-inch by 32-inch picture of Nayland Stadium in my car right now that's going in my man cave when I get home. And I'm, I'm thankful. James, you know, my Tennessee watched even. James, my friend, is here, drove up with me from Florida. Unfortunately, he's a Gator fan. That's proof that God can even love Gator fans. Can I get an amen? <laughs> but if we can't get the fundamentals right... We'll never move on to the greater things in faith. We'll never mature like God wants us to. So we have to continually to do the fundamentals. And that's what this scripture is about. This passage is about doing some very fundamentals right. Number one, he said they gave themselves to teaching or to worship. They worshiped together. There was a tweet that was put out last night, and I'll just read it to you as it was written because you won't, so you can't get mad at me. You're right. The guy's name is Michael Catt from Lifeway Research, probably the biggest Christian research center that we have. It says church families, church families, not people who are so, not associated with church, church families. Everybody say church families. Look your neighbor and say he's talking to you. Church families now attend 1.6 times a month. If parents choose the ballpark, the beach, the bed, or bailing out for any and every reason, we have little hope as a church of impacting our culture. And we look at our culture, and I'm 51, and I'm like many of you, you know, some of you are my age, some of you are older, some of you are younger, we don't like you, but no, just kidding. Um, but, you know, this is not the culture we grew up in. This culture has changed. But the church has changed, too, and a lot of times not for the better. If the culture, the, the culture's going to be the culture, Okay, we can't expect the culture to be different unless we as the church are different and we make a difference in the culture. We become salt and light. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then you would hear from heaven, I will forgive your sin and I will heal your land. It's the church that needs to change. There's corporate worship. When we come together and worship like today, and, and I hear people say, well, I listen to worship music. I, I pray. I have my devotion time. I even listen to Stephen Furtick podcasts. Like, as if listening to Stephen Furtick is going to get you to heaven. And there's nothing wrong with Stephen Furtick. I love him. He's probably the greatest communicator of our, of, of, of our generation. But that's not enough. In Luke 16, it says, He, being Jesus, went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And on the day of, uh, of the Sabbath, he went in the synagogue as was his custom. If Jesus was accustomed to going to church regularly, should, don't you think we need to? If it was Jesus' habit, I think it should be ours. The Bible says, forsake not the gathering together of yourselves, even so much more as you see that day approaching. The day approaching is meaning the return of Jesus. How many see that day approaching? It's, 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 it's closer today than it was yesterday. Now, I'm not going to tell you it's going to be tomorrow or next week or, or next year, but I'm telling you in my personal relationship with Christ in this season of my life, I don't know that I've ever prayed this because I always, you know, yeah, I'm ready for God to return, but I always wanted, you know, Lord, don't come until this happens. Don't come until... And here's my prayer. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. 
That day is approaching and we have to be more in worship with him. There is something special that happens when we come together in corporate worship. We live in a culture of confused priorities. And my pastor, we're going to church in Melbourne now, and I love him to death. He, he said something, been in church all my life, never thought about it this way. The Bible says to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And he says, if you're not seeking first the kingdom, then you're already living in the land of idolatry. Let that sink in a minute. Where is God on your list? James and I were listening to a, a message on the way up here. Where is God on your list? If you were to put your top three, your top five, your top ten list, where is God on your list? And he said this, and it's true. If God's not number one on your list, then he's not even on your list. Because God says, I'm a jealous God. Seek first the kingdom. If you're not seeking first the kingdom, then you're already living in the land of idolatry. And there's something special about corporate worship. In verse 43, it says, when they came together, there was a deep sense of awe. That's what happened here about five minutes ago. You can't get that in individual worship. There's nothing wrong with individual worship, nothing wrong with listening to preaching, nothing wrong with worshiping, nothing wrong with having your devotion time, your prayer time. You should do that. Please do that. But there's something special that happens when we come together in corporate worship. There is a deep sense of awe. The Spirit moves, and He changes us individually, but He also changes us corporately. If you agree with that, say amen. amen. Again, not to bring up a sore subject, but it's here. When you go to Nayland Stadium, there's an energy People are worshiping. Everybody worships something. And when you go and there's 100,000 people there, there's just an energy there. Yeah, I love to stay home and watch it on TV, but every now and then I love to be there because there's an energy there. Hopefully it will return one day. But anyway, but, but you know, there's an energy when we come together in corporate worship. You can't have corporate worship by yourself. My pet peeve when I was pastoring was, and especially in Florida, people would come up to me and say, well, I'll see you Sunday. Good Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. Well, number one, I can't tell you the last time I saw a creek in Florida. There's creeks in Tennessee everywhere, but we have canals and oceans and rivers and lakes, but I haven't seen a creek recently, so I don't think the creek's going to rise because there's not a creek anywhere near your house. And number two, if the creek does rise and water starts to come in your home, you better be at church. But it is God's will for you to be at worship. Pastor Scott didn't, pre didn't pay me to say that, but it's true. Amen? Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say it's God's will for you to worship corporately. Secondly, they fellowshiped. In verse 42, this is the first time we, use, we see the Greek word quanonia used in Scripture. It is used as you look in the New Testament in several different meanings, in several different ways. It's often translated as fellowship. But a better, more encompassing definition of quantania is community. You see, corporate, don't, don't miss this, corporate worship is where the church should get larger. Community is where the church gets smaller. Well, you say, I, I don't know if I want to run 850 people. I like knowing the person I'm sitting beside to. I like having access to my pastor. Number one, you're not here to be a disciple of Scott. You're here to be a disciple of Jesus. 
You're not here to know Scott, and Scott's a great guy to know, but you're here to know Jesus. And you think, well, I'm not sure I want to run 850 people because I won't know so-and-so. That's why community is so important. The, the, the corporate church right here on Sundays is where we get larger, but it's in community that you get smaller and you develop relationships and you have a place where everybody knows your name. And that's why community, and I've learned, uh, this has been so important in the last several years of my life because one of the things I did was lead our small groups at our church. Community is, is incredibly, uh, it's incredibly important for us as individuals. God made us to want community. God, you understand God is in community? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're three in one. They are in community. They are in relationship with one another. But why do we avoid community? Number one, we think it can happen on Sunday. Community cannot happen on Sunday morning. There's no way you can know, I mean, there's no way you can know everybody in this room. You probably don't even know everybody's name in this room, much less what they're going through, how to pray for them, how to care for them, where they are in their spiritual journey. Number two is fear. This is a huge one. Why do we avoid community? Because you're afraid to take off the mask. Every one of us have a mask on this morning. Well, this is me. Even I do. You know, I'm the, I'm the preacher, I'm the Tennessee fan, I live in Florida, da, da, da. We all have a, a mask that we show publicly. We're afraid to take, and that's why Scott and I, God has blessed us to have a relationship where we can just take off the mask of one another and say, this, this is me. And it's when you take off the mask that you find healing. And you also find accountability. Everybody needs accountability. And, and when you take off the mask, you're, you're afraid of judgment. You're afraid some, you're going like, oh, oh my goodness, I didn't know that about you. But what happens when you take off the mask and say, this is me, then you find people who say, really? Me too. And you find community and you find healing. The goal of community is that one person in this body, will know the real you. Thirdly, we avoid, it's awful quiet in here right now. We need community, amen? Thirdly, shame. I think I said this maybe last time I was here. The, in my opinion, the least practiced scripture in the Bible is James 5, 16. Therefore, confess your faults one to another that you might be Healed. And it's not just talking about physical healing, although that's very possible, but spiritual healing, emotional healing, mental healing. And, and when was the last time that you confessed your faults to somebody, that you confessed your sin, that you confessed your weakness, that you confessed your struggle? And in that moment when you do that, there's healing because then the enemy can no longer use against you because it's out there and you become accountable. But as long there is no intimacy in secrecy. So we have, to, we have to get rid of the shame and, and open up ourselves and be accountable to one another, and, and we find healing. And I know this is not proper English, but this is the way I say it. There is no healing in hiding. When Adam and Eve sinned and God came, where were they? They were hiding. Adam and Eve, where are you? Well, we're, we're shamed and we realized we were naked. Who told you you were naked? Why are you hiding? This is why, and I'm not going to let you off the hook. I'm not going to say other people. I'm going to say some of you, you only attend church 1.6 times a month. Because when you mess up, you're ashamed. And you think, well, I can't go to church like that. 
we are all broken. Newsflash. The church is a hospital. It's just that some of us got here a little earlier than others did. And we're a little farther down the road to healing. Than all, but we are all broken individuals. And if you don't think you're broken, that's your brokenness. Not, on, not in the message. We've all, we, most of us, at least those of us, how many, how many raised in church? Um, Sunday school. Vacation Bible school. How many like to have a chocolate chip cookie and some Kool-Aid right now? Amen. That's what I remember about vacation Bible school. <laughs> Glory be to God. Uh, but anyway, losing track. But we know the story of the prodigal. The younger son says, give me my money now, give me my inheritance. He goes off and he spends it and he, he wastes it. With, and when he comes home, uh, the, the elder brother says, well, you know, why are you giving him a party? He wasted all the money on prostitutes. Well, it doesn't say that anywhere. It says, it says bad living. But here's what I want, and many of us can, some of us can relate with the younger brother. We're, we're prodigals. And how many, I'm thankful when prodigals come home. Can I get an amen? And if you have a prodigal right now, in fact, let's just, how many of you have a prodigal? Be honest. A son, a daughter, a cousin, a, a parent. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray right now for prodigals to come home. God, wherever, whatever they're doing right now, that there would just be that, that sense of awe that we just talked about. That, Lord, the Holy Spirit would draw them right now to Jesus Christ. And, Lord, they would come home running to you because it's in you that they find health and life and everything they need. Lord, we pray for prodigals to come home. We decree and declare it. We agree together, Lord, it's going to happen because we know it's your will. And we pray in accordance with your will. We know it shall be done. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said amen. amen. But I wasn't the prodigal. I was the elder brother. I've been here all the time, God. Go to church, serve, pay my tithes, pray, never smoke, never drank, never cussed, never ran around with those who did until I met some of y'all. That's a joke. Um, and so therefore, and God just, God had to reveal this to me several years ago. I lived as if God owed me something. And God brought me to a place where I learned rather quickly he didn't owe me a stinking thing. My self-righteousness was preventing greater intimacy with God. And until that issue was settled, there couldn't be much growth. And once that, once that, even being saved for 44 years, once that issue was settled, there was a greater growth and a greater intimacy between God and I. And some of you, you just need to take off the mask. You're hiding. And as long as you're hiding, there's not going to be any healing. But God wants to heal you this morning when you get in community in the name of Jesus Christ. You cannot fully enjoy your tomorrows until you've settled your yesterdays. And God wants to settle some of your yesterdays, the hurt, the baggage that you've endured. We, we, God forbid, you know, we're not judging you. We hate that what happened to you happened to you. But God wants to heal what has happened to you so you can fully enjoy your tomorrow. We had a young man recently in our church, and, I, and by no means do I mean to say our church is better. I'm just using this as an illustration. Uh, several weeks ago, he walked up to the altar to get saved. Had on a lanyard. He was an usher. He was serving in the church. 
but yet he walked up to get saved. Why? Because he belonged before he believed. He belonged before he behaved. But you see, what we often make the mistake as a church is we want people, if you'll believe like us and behave like us, then you can belong. No, 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 no. That's not what Jesus did. People want to belong. And when they belong, then they will eventually believe and behave like us. But we expect them to, you got to look like us. you got to dress like us. you got to talk like us. You know what the word sanctification means. you got to call each other brother and sister. And thank Lord we don't do that anymore. But we have this Christian ease and this Christian language. And we expect them to act like us, believe believe like us, dress like us, behave like us before they can belong. No, we want them to belong. And then when they belong, they will believe and they will eventually behave because God will change them because they get changed in community. They get changed in the presence of our God. If you believe that, say amen. Amen. So what are you holding on to that is preventing you from experiencing abundant life? I can walk off the platform right now. What are you holding on to that's preventing you from experiencing abundant life? We love to quote John 10.10. I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. But God, why am I not enjoying abundant life? We want to blame God. But we got to look inward and say, what is there that I'm holding on to in my life that is preventing me from experiencing healing and the abundant life that God promised? If you're not experiencing abundant life, let me let you in on a secret. It's not God's fault. You will always be as sick as, your, as sick as your secrets. You will always be as sick as your secrets. So they worshiped together. They were in community together. And thirdly, it says they ate together. We don't have to spend a whole lot of time there because we like to eat. Can I get an amen? I told James, I called him, and he was going to drive up with me from Florida. I called him one night. I said, James. He said, yeah. I said, God spoke to me about our trip. Really? He was on the edge of his seat. He wanted to hear what God said. And I said, God said, we need to go to Apple Barn while we're there. (laughs) (laughs) And sure enough, we did last night. Oh, them apple fritters and apple butter and apple julep and Lord have mercy. I mean, by the time the food got there, we were already full. I'm telling you, there was enough food left there to feed the homeless. And I was a little disappointed. They changed their chocolate cake. That was my favorite part other than the apple fritters. And I always get my dessert to go, and I get home, and the, and the chocolate cake is not what it used to be, so I probably didn't eat anyway. But we don't have a problem with eating. Can I get an amen? <laughs> so we'll kind of fly by that one. Fourthly, they, they prayed. Prayer does not move God toward us. It moves us toward God. See, we, we need to rethink prayer. We think prayer is, okay, God, hear me. Come close to me. Do what I want you to do. It's like he's some genie in the lamp. Prayer does not move God toward us. It moves us toward God. Prayer should not be our last. Should, prayer should be our first response and not our last resort. We come and we say, well, I've done everything, Pastor Scott. I've, I've done everything I know to do. Well, have you prayed about it? Well, no, not really. Prayer is a lifestyle. That's why the Bible says to pray continuously without ceasing. It doesn't mean you're praying 24 hours a day. We're not monks, but it just means you are in a lifestyle of prayer. I love this. Prayer must be habitual. It must be something that's a habit. It's a lifestyle. But we cannot allow the routine of prayer to make ritual what is relational. 
Let me say that again. We cannot allow what is ritual to break that which is relational. Prayer is at its heart a relationship with God, and God wants intimacy with you. It is a two-way relationship. So again, just like we said a few minutes ago, when you're praying after about five or ten minutes, hush. Just, just listen and say, God, speak to me. Because God, it is a two-way conversation. It's like me talking to James or my dad who's here this morning or Pastor Scott. We have a, you know, if you're, there's a, a scripture that was, if you, how many of you will read the verse of the day in you version? You should do that. But anyway, it was verse of the day one day this week. And it was probably one of the most, all, all scriptures accurate. If you believe that, say amen. But this one's probably the most accurate scripture I've ever read. Where words are many, sin is not absent. If you're having a conversation with somebody and the other person needs to, never gets to speak anything, never gets to say anything, just, just try to listen. God gave you two ears and one mouth. And I'm, I may be getting in your business. I'm not trying to be mean, but I'm just saying when you're praying, there has to be a time where you just stop and say, okay, Lord, speak to me. God wants to speak to you. And prayer is relational. It's not, it's, not, it's not transactional. It is relational. And, 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 you know, the churches, there's some huge, one of them that Pastor Scott and I went to Grow Conference, Church of the Highlands in Birmingham. They run over 50,000 people a weekend. They have 20 different campuses in Alabama. They're in 14 of the Alabama correctional facilities. They broadcast live into the correctional facilities. It, it, it's just amazing. And, and people talk about, what's the secret sauce? How did you do this? How did you do that? And if you spend enough time around Church of the Highlands, you will find probably the, the talking about recipes, going back to recipes. If you were to look at the recipe of their church, the secret sauce, also, why they have grown the way they have? Prayer. Pure and simple. From day one, they have prayed. They have prayed every Saturday. They've been in existence for 18, 19 years. Every Saturday, they pray at 9 o'clock before for Sunday services. They have 21 days of prayer twice a year. They have developed a culture and an atmosphere of prayer. Understand this, we can do a lot of things wrong, but if we pray, it makes up the difference. Say prayer makes up the difference. Verse 44 says, And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions, just shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes from the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. Don't miss those last two words, joy and generosity. What caused them to give their stuff away? What caused them to sell their property and give it to the needy? What caused them to share everything they had? Love. Love. I loved your website. I looked at it this, this week on the front page. Love God, love people. You know, we know the Ten Commandments. There are probably, there were over estimates between 600 and 1,000 commandments in Scripture. But it, all, the, all those commandments hang on these two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So if there's a, if there's a picture, that picture right there, it's hanging on something. So the, all the other commandments hang on this, on, on, on what's holding that picture, a hook. The, the, all, all the other commandments hang on love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If, you, if we don't practice those two, then none of the others mean anything. And there's actually three commands there. To love God with all your heart. To seek first the kingdom. First. To love others as you love yourself. But to love others as you love yourself, you've got to love yourself. 
You are special. You are unique. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are not an accident. You're not a social security number. God knows your name. He knows the numbers of hairs on your head. For some of us, that's a whole lot more than others. But God knows you're coming and you're going. You're rising up and you're setting down. He knows everything about you and he still loves you unconditionally. Somebody ought to shout amen right now. You are special. You are unique to God. He loves you. And, and we, we, and you know, again, raised, being raised in church, thank God for it. Thank God I was raised in church. But in some ways, being raised in church messed me up. I mean that. I don't mean that to be smart, Alec, but it's true. Because being raised in church, especially holiness church, when you saw people depressed, you just, you just say, well, just get over it. You just need to go to church and pray and get Jesus and you'll be fine. And that's just simply not true. I've come to the place of greater understanding where, yeah, they need Jesus. And yeah, Jesus can fix anything. But sometimes they need medicine. And sometimes they need counseling. And why I'm spending, because, you know, that was, it was just never a burden to me. I, I, I don't... Thank God I've never, I, I don't see how you can come to the place in your life where you think suicide is the answer. But in the past few months, and the season of my life, God has given me an incredible burden for those who struggle with depression. And here's why. I don't want one more person to take their life. Not one more. Not one more in the name of Jesus. We had a 26-year-old young man in our church last week, served at the church, beautiful young man, take his own life. Jared Wilson, who was a, a pastor, associate pastor of a large church of, in California, had written many Christian books. He married and beautiful children. And he struggled with depression. He talked about it. He, he had a ministry based upon it to talk to people about depression and suicide. And last Monday on National Suicide Prevention Day, he took his own life. I don't understand. Thank God I don't understand. But I'm here to tell you this morning, God loves you and your life matters. And if we can stop one more person from taking their life, then thanks be unto God who always calls us to triumph in Jesus Christ. And, and you say, well, I don't understand that either. Well, thank God you don't. Thank the Lord you're not depressed. Thank the Lord you don't struggle with those feelings. But statistics will tell you, I could have every sixth person in this building stand up right now. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, uh, every sixth person. That's how many of you have thought about taking your own life this week. Statistically. we got to love ourselves. You matter. You have a purpose. You're unique and you're special. There's nobody, even if you're an identical twin, there's nobody else like you. God has a plan. Turn to your neighbor and say, God has a plan and a purpose for your life. Turn to your other neighbor and say, God loves you more than you can imagine. So if, if, and I mean this, if, if you ever get to the place where you think taking your life is your answer, I will give you my cell phone and you call me and I will tell you, don't do it. Because God loves you. Christ's love compels us. Christ's love should be our motivation. I told you earlier, alternative lifestyles. We have a couple that attends our church that lives an alternative lifestyle. 
And we don't judge them verbally or non-verbally. See, we, 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 we say, well, I don't judge them, but we cross our eyes with them every time we see it. And we're like... And God drew me to these two individuals because he knew it was out of my comfort zone. He knew it's, it was something that was difficult for me. And so I try every Sunday to find them and talk to them and show them the love of Christ and show them that they matter and show them that we're glad they're there. I mean, where else would you want them to be? We want them to feel loved and respected and treasured enough and valued enough and safe enough to come to church instead of being out there in the world. Can I get an amen? And a few Sundays ago, they brought a friend to church, and it was incredible. I'll just go, you got to get the picture. Two lesbian women led a person to the altar, and she got saved. A visitor. I'm like, I've never seen that happen before. And that's what God wants to do when we share the love of Jesus Christ, when we love him with all our heart. Now, that doesn't mean we say their lifestyle is okay. I didn't say that. When the woman was caught in the act of adultery, Jesus responds with grace and mercy. He says, neither do I accuse you. Where are your accusers? But then he looked at her and he said, go and sin no more. He offered her grace, but then he offered her truth. The Bible says that Jesus came full of grace and truth, but grace must always precede truth. Do you get that? Do we get that? And you say, well, I'm not sure I believe that. Then the Bible says, let your words be full of grace, seasoned with salt. That means you've got to have a lot of grace and a little bitty bit of salt. A little bit of truth. Yes, we need truth. But many times our conversation of Christians, especially when it comes to non-Christians, it's full of salt and seasoned with a little bit of grace. And that's not what Scripture says. It's not what Jesus practiced. Let your words be full of grace, seasoned with salt. Speak the truth, but always speak it in love. So they they gave with great joy and generosity. Musicians, come. I'm not finished, but I'm going to go to where I need to go. They gave with great joy and generosity. We serve an extravagantly generous God. Therefore, we should be extravagantly generous people. I was, again, I was raised holiness Pentecostal Church of God, like some of you. And, and I knew God loved me, and I knew about amazing grace, how sweet the sound. But for most of my life, I thought of God, and I knew the, the scripture, the song we sang, God is more than enough. But for most of my life, God was just enough. God's enough. He is. But God doesn't want to be just enough. He wants to be more than enough. We serve an extravagantly generous God. He has reaped up on you blessing after blessing, after mercy, after grace, after truth, after love. Understand this. If you live in America, you are rich. Period. End of conversation. Statistically, It is truth. Well, you know, I don't have the money to be extravagantly generous. Well, it's not just money, number one. It's sometimes it's your time, sometimes it's your love, sometimes it's your 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 just being gracious to someone. It's not always money, but if you live in America, you're rich. Pure and simple. 
But here's what, here's what I've come to know. God has given me more than I deserve. Can I get an amen? How many would say, raise your hand, God's given you more than you deserve. Come on. But not more than I desire. You see, I never used to pray that way. So every day now, unapologetically say, God, give me more. Give me more. Not so I, God wants to, here, here, here's what our pastor's been talking about, and it's so true. God wants to give you barns. You say, what does that mean? Why would you need a barn? Because you got more than enough. Why does God want to give you more than enough? So you can share it with those in need. God, give me more than enough so I can make an eternal difference in the lives of others. That's why I want more. And that's why God wants to give you more. He wants to give you barns. He wants to give you more than enough. He wants to bless you exceedingly, abundantly, above all you could ask or even imagine. So go to him and say, God, I unapologetically, boldly approach the throne of grace. Give me more. But understand that more starts with more of him. I can have all the money in the world, but if I don't have more of him, it's not going to make a difference. And here's what else I've learned. More also sometimes mean more work. One of the reasons I'm here this weekend, there's a guy in Cleveland, Tennessee, who used to be a client of mine, and he switched plans, and he called me back, called me a few weeks ago and said, I want to switch back. See you there in a few Saturdays, I'll be there. So I drove 900 and something miles to make a sale, to get another client. Not lifting myself up. And, and thank the Lord for Pastor Scott allowing me to preach. So that makes it a great weekend. And, I, and just a lot of ways. So I just kind of multitask it. Multitask. But understand that I understand that sometimes, number one, more starts with more of him. And number two, more sometimes means more work. But God wants to give you more. And I'm not here to brag on me. I'm here to brag on God because I understand everything I have is his. I'm not an owner. I'm a manager. I'm a steward. And Pastor Scott's been in my home, and he will tell you, it's so much more than I deserve. But the reason that he came to my house, and I treated him the way I did, because I told God, you've given me this house, now I'm going to use it for your glory. If there's a pastor or a Christian or a friend or a brother or sister in need, my house is available 24-7. Because I understand it's not mine, it's yours. But here's how I want to end. We need to be extravagantly generous as he is. Turn with me if you have your Bibles, and I promise I'm closing to Mark 8, 22. Mark chapter 8, verse 22. Holy Spirit, speak to us in this moment. And they came to Bethsaida, and so people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. Don't miss that. He had community. He had friends. And sometimes you might need some people to bring you to Jesus so you can be healed. Sometimes you might need a friend to call and encourage you on the phone. Say, hey, brother, hey, sister, I love you. I'm praying for you. Let's go to church tomorrow. Let's go, let's go to dinner tonight and just hang out. He had community. He had people who cared about him, and they made sure he got to Jesus. Community is vitally important if we're going to succeed. Can I get an amen? 
he took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. So some, excuse me, some of the things God wants to do in your life, he's going to take, have to take you out of your comfort zone. I said, some of the things God wants to do in your life, he's going to have to take you out of your comfort zone. We love comfort. I love sitting in my recliner on Saturday and watching college football. There's only about 13 Saturdays a year where college football is on. Let me sit here and watch my football. I like being comfortable, but I've understood that most of the greatest moments of my life are when I got out of my comfort zone. God wants you out of your comfort zone so he can do something new and incredible and terrific and awesome and mighty and miraculous and supernatural in your life. He took him outside the village. And when he had spit on the man's eyes, say what? Seriously? Now imagine... I have Peggy come up and well, I have, you don't have to do but just if Peggy comes up wanting prayer and I say, okay, Peggy, and I spit in her eyes. I'm like, what the world are you doing? Are you crazy? But that's what Jesus did. And the point is, not only does he have to get you out of your comfort zone, but you're gonna have to allow God to do some things that you're not comfortable with. He's gonna say, go here, do that, call them, love them, you know, whatever. Like, I'm not sure about that, God. But if you want to see the healing take place, you're going to have to walk in obedience. He spit in his eyes. And another thing, if you want to see God move in your life, you're going to have to endure some messes. Many of us never see the miracle because we're afraid of the mess. That'll preach right there. Somebody should say amen. Many of us never see the miracle because we're afraid of the mess. Grace is messy. put his hands on him, and Jesus asked him, do you see anything? The man looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. My question to you is, how did he know what trees looked like? How did he know what trees looked like? Because obviously, Scripture doesn't clearly state this, but I mean, we're, we're not, we're not we, can, we can surmise, and I don't think it's taking Scripture out of context, that at some point in his life, he could see. He saw trees. He saw men. He saw water. He saw colors. And he lost his sight. And he said, yes, Lord, I, I can see, but, but that guy right there kind of looks like a tree. Kind of looks like that right there. Kind of looks like a tree. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were open and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Another translation says he was completely healed. And my, my point to you is this morning, God wants to restore some of you. He wants to restore your sight. Maybe you're not physically blind, but you are spiritually struggling. You are emotionally struggling. You're struggling with depression. You're struggling with doubt. You're dr struggling with fear. You're struggling with shame. You're struggling with what is my purpose in this church? What is my purpose in life? What is my purpose on my job? And God wants to put his hands on your eyes and your heart this morning, and he wants you to see again clearly. He wants to completely heal you. God wants to restore your sight because the Bible says without vision, the people perish. God wants to give you a new vision this morning. And again, I, I believe with all my heart, this church can run 850, 1,000. This church can do incredible things if we will allow God to place within our hearts and spirits a new vision for lost people. 
Don't go get people that already go to church somewhere. They got a church. Go find lost people. <laughs> and I promise I'm closing. My pastor was in a restaurant recently, and he walked out. So he was walking out, and he, he heard somebody say, I've been to your church a few times. And his initial reaction is, is the same as mine when that happens. Oh, Lord, was I nice. Because <laughs> that's happened to me a time or two. And, and so he looked to see who it was, and he went and talked to her, and she said, yeah, I've come a few times. And, and she said, you know what I really like about your church? Honestly, good, this quote. He said, no, what's that? She said, I like all the riffraff. That person you look at cross-eyed next time you walk down the street, man, they're weird. What's their deal? They just need Jesus. They just need Jesus. All I can tell you is God has restored my sight completely. But not only completely, he's made it better than it was to start with. My life, and I've told you, but I I just, my life looks nothing. I have, many are the plans of a man, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. And if you took Tony's plans and what my life looks right now, they don't look anything alike. And for a long time, that bugged me to death. I may have shared this before, and I promise I'm trying to. I'm just, one week after we bought our new home in Florida, I got a phone call. And Pastor Scott and I have known each other for 30-something years. Maybe, yeah, at least 30. We're old. And we started as youth pastors together. And I youth pastored at Northwest Church of God in Knoxville, Tennessee. One week after we closed on our home, I got a phone call. Tony, a friend of mine, Northwest Church of God is, needs a new pastor. Do you want to come? Oh, yes, I did. But he was a day late and a dollar short. I bought a house, and I couldn't get out of it. And I just knew that was God's timing. And for the longest time, I was not very good to live with. Ask my wife. And now fast forward three or four years later, and I'm like, thank God that wasn't your will for my life. Because what he's, if if my life looks nothing like I could imagine, but it is so much better and greater and wonderful. And and I mean this in, 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 in humor, but also in seriousness. And one of the reasons is I don't have to put up with all the crap that this guy has to put up with. So be easy on him. Love him. Protect him. Guard him. Let him be a dad. Let him be a husband. Let him be a human. Watch after him and love him with all your heart. Guard him. He is a treasure. You say, well, what do pastors do during the week with all their free time? I wish you could walk a week in his shoes. You'd quit after one week. I resign. I'm done. See ya. Y'all a bunch of crazy people. And again, I say that in humor, but let me close with this. Promise. 
You are loved with an everlasting love. You are not here by accident. You are here by design. And God has a role for you to play at Seymour Church. God has a role for you to play in your neighborhood. God has a role for you to play in your family. God has a role for you to play at your job. And that is to love, here's what, and don't get offended to this, but this is our motto at Discover Life Church. Because we started, and when Pastor Ken started 20 years ago, it was a small church, and now we run about 1,500 on a weekend. Here's our motto, we love the hell out of people. That's what God wants you to do. They may look at you and your theology and say, well, I'm not sure about what they believe or I'm not sure about this or that, but here's what I can tell you. They love me. And when you will love people, they will come in and they will sit in these chairs and they'll walk to an altar of repentance and they will, they will belong before they believe or they behave, but eventually they will believe and they will behave and their life will be made new. Uh, the greatest miracle of all is not to see somebody get out of their wheelchair and walk. The greatest miracle of all is when somebody who is dead in their sins and trespasses comes to this altar and in a moment they're a new creation. That's the greatest miracle you'll ever see. And that's what every church should be about. That's what every church should be about. Reaching lost people. Let's stand. This is a pastoral moment. So Pastor Scott, I'm giving it to you. I'm going to ask you to take a moment. As they begin to lead us in worship, I want you to take just a moment and I want you to process what Pastor Tony has given us. And I just want you to say, God, speak to me. God, speak to me. And listen. I look at my children a lot of times and I just go, that means shut up, hush, be quiet. So I want you to say, God, speak to me. Allow them to worship and you listen. Father, right now, speak to me in Jesus' name.